Our gospel lesson will serve as the basis for our children's devotion and sermon this morning. It comes from Luke chapter 18. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad, because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, No one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come. Eternal life. Good morning. How are you guys today? What do you think the fastest thing a person can do is? Want to take a guess? What do you think the fastest thing a person can do is? What do you think? Uh, running? running? Uh, blinking or snapping. Blinking or snapping. Interesting. One more guess. Stacking cups. Stacking cups. That's pretty fast. Let me give you a couple of examples of fast things that people can do. So Michael Phelps has the world record for the fastest speed recorded in water. The fastest that a human being has ever swam. 4.7 miles an hour. It's fast in water, but not that fast in general, right? 4.7 miles an hour, that's it? The fastest human runner ever was a, a sprinter named Usain Bolt. He still holds the world record for the fastest top speed in his world record-setting race. He touched 27.1 miles an hour. And just for a split second, but he got over 27 miles an hour. That's pretty fast. There's a pitcher in baseball. His name is Araldus Chapman. He's thrown the fastest pitch, and he's left-handed. He threw the fastest pitch ever, 105.8 miles an hour. That's fast. But that's not the fastest thing a person can do. You know what the fastest thing a person can do is? Fall. A man from Austria by the name of Felix Baumgartner set the world skydiving record with a speed of 843 miles an hour, 843 miles an hour, straight down. And then his parachute opened and he landed. That's incredible. 
843 miles an hour, he fell super fast. Today, we are talking about falling, but not falling like skydiving. We're talking about a different kind of falling. Today, we're talking about falling away from God. There are some Christians who think that if you're really a Christian, it's impossible for you to fall away from God. But that's not true. That's not what the Bible says. In fact, it is very possible for a Christian to fall away from God. And it's one of the fastest things that can happen to us. It's a scary thing to think about because we don't want to think about falling away from God because people who fall away from God spend eternity separated from God and his love in a terrible place called hell. And that's super scary for us. But then we learn about Jesus. And we learn about how this God, who's perfect, who expects us to be perfect, he sent his son Jesus to rescue us so that we definitely, absolutely would not go to hell. Because he wants us to be with him forever in heaven. But there's only one way that we can get to heaven. And that's if we trust in Jesus alone. But see, that's a problem for us. The, the reason that we can fall away so fast is because inside of every single one of us, there's this little person that hates God. Have you ever seen those cartoons with the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other? That's actually kind of real. There's inside of you a little voice that always wants to do what God hates. That little voice never wants you to listen to your parents. That little voice never wants you to love your brothers and sisters. That little voice always wants you to do the bad things. But because you're Christians, there's another voice inside of you that loves God and wants to do what God says and always wants to obey our parents and love our brothers and sisters. And inside of us, there's like this wrestling match happening between these two voices, always going back and forth. God says that his word and his promises are kind of like water and that we can use his promises every day to drown that naughty voice, to take that naughty voice and tell him, I'm not going to listen to you anymore, to take God's promises that Jesus loves us, that Jesus died for us, that all of our sins are forgiven, and to tell that little voice, you have no control over me anymore. I'm a baptized child of God. To listen to what God says, to listen to the promises that God makes, that drowns the old sinful person inside of us so that it can have no control over us so that we can serve God and our neighbor willingly. Today, we're going to talk about what it means to live like Christians. We're going to talk about what it means to listen to what God says and then to use what God says. The person who does what God says will never fall. Jesus is your Savior. You can trust in him and in him alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your truths in your word are, are really very simple. 
You tell us that we're sinners and that we deserve hell. And then you tell us that we are forgiven and loved and that we will spend eternity with you in heaven because of what Jesus has done for us. So simple to hear, so simple to remember, so hard to use. We ask today that you would help us to learn to use these truths in our lives day after day. That every single morning we would wake up and trust your promises and drown that old sinful nature inside of us that we might serve you and serve our neighbor every single day. Teach us more and more to cling to Jesus as our only hope. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we'll say that that children's devotion served to introduce us to our text today. Let's just dive right in. So in verse 18 we are introduced to this ruler. And right off the bat, I could tell you that this is definitely a Jewish ruler. And the reason I could tell you that is because in the first three verses, we hear Jesus say to him, you know the commandments. The only way that that could have been true is if he was Jewish, if he had learned them in the synagogue as a a child. And of course he did. He knew the commandments well. This is a, a Jewish ruler. The second thing I want you to notice about this text is that it is bookended by eternal life. So the very last words of the text are eternal life, and the very last words of the first verse are eternal life. This text is all about eternal life. (laughs) How do we get eternal life? How do we get to heaven? How do we get to be with God forever? This Jewish ruler, he comes to Jesus and he calls him good. We'll get to that in a minute. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we get a little geeky this morning on language. What must I do to inherit? I is the subject, do is the verb, where the focal point is in English. What must I do? And then the inheriting thing is like the result of the doing, right? To inherit. But the focal point is I do. And this is one of the problems with translation, where we're trying to take the meaning from one language and put it in another. Because what the guy asks Jesus is actually quite different. He says, doing what will I inherit? Eternal life. Subject I, verb inherit. His focus is actually not on the doing but on the inheriting, which we would say is good, right? (laughs) He's got his focus on the right thing. He wants to inherit eternal life. The problem is, he thinks that the way he inherits eternal life is by doing something. And so he's flawed. He's a church guy. He looks the part. But he was an unbeliever. At the point where we meet him in our text, he's not going to inherit eternal life because he thinks that he could do something to inherit it. 
And that's why Jesus takes the path he takes. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. And another geeky aspect. When Jesus says no one is good except God alone, he says no one is good except one, God. He's echoing Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. After the sermon, you and I often say a creed, like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. Well, in in Jewish times, their creed was one sentence. Very easy for them to remember. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord one. And here Jesus says, no one is good except God. One. He wants this man to to ponder who God is. In all that's bottled up in the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, all the pictures of the creator God, the sustainer God, the, the promising salvation God, the angry judge God, the God bringing his people up out of Egypt with miraculous power and providing miracles in the desert day after day. Jesus wants this Jewish man to think about all the things he knows about God and then to realize God is good, but no one else is. And that's why Jesus breaks out the commandments. And you'll notice these are what we call second table of the law, so the ones that have to do with people. And he's got commandments 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. They're out of order, but 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. You shall not commit adultery, that's 6. You shall not murder, that's 5. You shall not steal, that's 7. You shall not give false testimony, that's 8. Honor your father and mother, that's 4. Jesus points to all the commandments that have to do with our relationship with the people that he's placed in our lives, and the man's response reveals his heart. All these I have kept since I was a boy. Literally, all these I have guarded since I was a boy. I have guarded these things as my most priceless possession. Again, that sounds good, right? The person who loves God's laws, the person who says these are important to me, the morals of God are important to me. This might sound crazy to you, but Sometimes I like to stop by random houses and knock on their door just to see what happens. There was a time when I was a young man training to be a pastor that I asked myself, if I, if I really believe this, if I really believe the stuff that I talked about with the kids in the children's devotion today, if I really believe that there's a heaven and a hell, why would I be afraid of whatever's behind that door? I don't know who's behind the door, but I know two things about who's behind that door. They're definitely a sinner, and they're definitely going to die. And if I know that the person behind this strange door is definitely a sinner, and they're definitely going to die, why wouldn't I every once in a while take some time to knock on their door and see if I can tell them about Jesus? And so every once in a while I'll do that just to make sure I don't lose it. It doesn't always go so well. 
Sometimes as soon as a person hears you're from a church, they want you to get out of there and get out of there quick. There were some very bold missionaries in our church body back in the 80s and 90s who would walk up to the door, person would answer, and they'd say, hi, my name's so-and-so from such-and-such a church. I was just wondering if, if you were to die tonight and Jesus were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? And every now and then someone would answer. And if they did, the answer was almost always the same. Something about the second table of the law. I don't know. I was never that bad of a person. I respect my parents and I haven't killed anybody. And I don't know. I, I try to do good things. My view of myself and my view of God's word, I, I don't know. I'm not as bad as other people. I guess if God is anything worth his salt, he'll look at me and say, yeah, good enough. Come on in. That was this guy. Somebody who relied on who they are and what they're like and said, I'm good enough. And Jesus says, ah, one thing you lack, you're an idolater. Ha! You forgot the first three commandments. You shall have no other gods. You should not misuse the name of the Lord your God and remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, we don't know what happened to this man. God doesn't tell us through his word. But we do know what happens next. The people listening had a very understandable reaction. Well, who can be saved then? If that's God's standard, then no one's going to be saved. And of course, Jesus' answer is one of the more beautiful answers in all of Scripture. He says, well, what is impossible with man is possible with God. (laughs) So yeah, it is absolutely impossible for you to get into heaven. Absolutely, 100%. You can't do it. But what's impossible for you is possible with God. And then Peter often the spokesman for the disciples, speaks up. And listen to what he says. We have left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age, now, And in the age to come, eternal life. Now, a lot of prosperity gospel preachers have abused a text like this. They've said things like, you want to be really blessed? Then you're going to have to bless big. You want your bank account to grow? Then first, you're going to need to cut a big check. You want to see more money and more blessings flowing into your life? Oh, you better start giving more to your church and to your God. Because until you start giving up all your wealth, God's not going to truly bless you. But if you do, if you give big, God's going to give back even bigger. That is not at all what he is talking about. Not even close. 
Jesus is not saying, if you give up everything that's valuable to you, God's going to give you back so much more in earthly value. Nope. Not even a bit. But Jesus is kind of putting his arm around Peter and saying, yeah, you have done something that is very hard. Something that most of you probably can't even begin to grasp. Some cultures are individualistic cultures. Some are communal cultures. We live in a culture that's very individually driven. Me, myself, and I. But there are cultures where community and family are more valuable even than your own life. To walk away from your role in your community, to walk away from your family is unthinkable, and yet that's what Peter did. Peter's culture, the culture of this Jewish man, community, family was the most important thing you had. And Jesus is telling this guy to walk away from all of it. Peter says, we already did. This is the most challenging thing. And even for you and I in individualistic cultures like this one, it's hard for us to imagine walking away from everything we know and love most dearly for Christ. But Jesus says, the one who has nothing more important than me will be blessed in this life and in the life to come. Not blessed with worldly riches, but blessed with the promises of God. So that even the worst suffering in this life will be looked at differently. Because no matter what can come your way, no matter how hard it might be, if you have the promises of God, sins forgiven in Jesus, even the most incomprehensible suffering becomes a blessing. Because it changes your focus. It helps you to see things for what they really are. You can't make this up. Listen to what the very next section in, our, in, in, the, in the Gospel of Luke is. This is right after Jesus saying, we'll, we'll not fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus took the 12 aside and he told them, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. I'm going to tell you why. They had not yet learned to apply law and gospel. They were beginning to know the truths of law and gospel. Law shows our sin. Gospel shows our Savior. They were beginning to, to know these things in their minds, but they had not yet put them to work in their lives. It's only in the Holy Spirit's school of experience when you take these truths of law and gospel and you take them home and you start working with them you start putting them to use in your life. It's only then that the Holy Spirit can teach you how to use law and gospel, and it's when you learn how to use law and gospel that the whole Bible is open and everything makes sense. So if you're one of those people who reads the Bible and you're like, I don't get any of this, this is so weird, we know exactly what to do. 
apply law and gospel. When you get in an argument with your spouse, your goal is not to figure out how you can prove that person wrong. Instead, in your head, you're thinking, okay, how do I apply law and gospel? How do I apply law and gospel? How do I apply law and gospel? I'm really angry, but how do I do it? And you're going to make a mess of it. Okay, you are going to make an absolute mess of it. But this is how you learn. This is how the Holy Spirit teaches you. Because instead of trying to prove the person wrong and then saying, now make this one change and it'll never happen again, law, law, you're going to say, okay, wait a minute. Once they see their sin, once they know what they did is wrong, now they need the gospel. So now I'm going to tell them, Jesus has forgiven you. You're at peace. And now the law comes back. And now that we're at peace, let's bring the law right back because it's good. It's good for us. And let's make a plan to try to avoid this next time. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. But there's going to be times when you're going to forget and you're going to just beat your spouse over the head with the law. And then you're going to feel bad about that. And you should. And that's when you need the gospel. You don't need to say to yourself, I got to do better next time. No, 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 no. Take yourself to the cross. Take yourself to the cross. It's not sufficient to have the law and gospel applied to you by me. You now need to go home and you need to start practicing applying it to yourself. When you feel guilty over your failures, bring yourself to the cross of Jesus and say, this failure is forgiven too. Now bring the law back on and make a plan. And say, and here's what I'm going to do to try to live a better life. And it's going to go back and forth all the time, many times a day. You're going to be wrestling with law and gospel all the time. And again, you're going to make a mess of it. And the Holy Spirit's going to use that mess to bring you right back to the cross, your only hope. This whole series has been about faith increasing. It's about what happens when we learn by God's grace through his word to cling to Jesus and to Jesus alone. What happens is complete dependence on Jesus. God be with you as you go home and work out law and gospel in your life. Enjoy the Holy Spirit's school this week. Amen.